Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm Julie Fetty, host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Lynn Huffer about her new book, Are the Lips a Grave? A Queer Feminist on the Ethics of Sex, which has been published by Columbia University Press in 2013. Lynn Huffer is Samuel Candler Dobbs Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Emory University. She received her PhD in French literature from the University of Michigan and has taught previously at Yale and Rice Universities. Her fields of study include feminist theory, queer theory, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender studies, modern French and Francophone literature, literary theory, and ethics. She is the author of three previous books, Mad for Foucault in 2010, Maternal Pasts, Feminist Futures in 1998, and Another Colette in 1992. Lynn Huffer, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Lynn. So could you just begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So I'm a professor here at Emory in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and I've been here um, for nine years now. And um, I used to be in French studies, but I've shifted over to women's gender and sexuality studies because I feel that um, as an interdisciplinary field, it's um, a better fit for me in my broad interests that have moved beyond my training in French studies. Um, I did receive a PhD in French studies in um, 1989 from the University of Michigan, And, um, you know, I still remain very attached to material in French, but I also have um, broadened my interests to include other things. Um, And I guess you wanted me to talk about even, like, where I was born and that kind of thing. So um, I was born in Rochester, New York in 1960, and I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And I went to public high school, was always very interested in um, literature in particular. I've always had a bent toward the humanities, um, even as a child. I originally went to college at Wells College in upstate New York. It's a very small women's college, and it was a bit too small and isolated for me. So I left Wells College and took a couple years off and became a ski instructor. (laughs) And um, then I went back to college and finished up at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. And then I went directly into the PhD program at University of Michigan. And um, as I said, finished there in 1989. And as you mentioned, um, I then had my first job at Yale University and I was there for nine years in the French department and then moved to Rice in 1998 and was at Rice until uh, 2005 when I came 
to my current position here at Emory in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Department. Great. And um, we can tell from Are the Lips a Grave that there is a merging of uh, French literature with um, your more recent turn to women's gender and sexuality studies. So can you tell us a little bit about what your purposes were in this book? Yeah, um, I mean, definitely this book, as you can probably tell, was was a long time in the making. It actually covers a great span of time in my own thinking and in my own work. I began writing some of the earlier essays in the book um, around, you know, the late 1990s, actually. So when I was still in a French department, and I think that is reflected in some of what you see in the final version of the book. And, um, you know, much of the literary and cultural material that I take up in the book is um, French language material and actually comes from France. That said, I also, at the same time, take up broader questions that I think reflect the field of um, feminist theory in particular and also the related field of queer theory. So I'm trying to bring together my own training in French literature and French philosophy with um, some of the questions that have arisen within women's studies and feminist theory and queer theory, um, especially in an Anglophone uh, context. So I don't know if you want me to go into more detail than that, but that's sort of the general way in which I came to it. Yes, indeed. Um, and your subtitle, A Queer Feminist on the Ethics of Sex, this, this clearly delineates some of your goals um, for the book. Um, maybe perhaps you could start by reviewing with us the queer split from feminism and the approaches that you advocate to surmount this binary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, the way the story usually goes about that queer split that you just mentioned is that, you know, feminist theory started developing in the late, in the mid to late 1970s on the heels of the second wave of the women's movement. And feminist theory was pretty well underway when certain scholars started asking questions that feminist theory as a field didn't seem to have the tools to answer. And in particular, uh, Gail Rubin wrote a very influential essay that was published in 1984 called Thinking Sex. Um, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick published, again, a very influential book in 1990, Epistemology of the Closet. And then Judith Butler is also another person who is often cited as being at the origin of this split away from feminism that becomes queer theory um, with her book, um, Gender Trouble, which is also 1990, along with Epistemology of the Closet. So those three figures, Rubin, Sedgwick, and Butler, um, often are held out as these origin figures of uh, the birth of, of queer theory. And Rubin and Sedgwick in particular make this really explicit claim that the theory of gender that we have with feminism is not able to deal with all of the issues that arise when you start thinking about um, sexuality and specifically questions having to do with sexual orientation, um, sexual deviance. In Rubin's case, as an anthropologist, dealing with um, the practices of certain erotic communities in San Francisco 
and, and just saying that feminism didn't have the analytic tools uh, to be able to deal with that. And so positing the need for an autonomous field of analysis that, that then came to be known as queer theory. Um, now, of course, like all origin stories, that origin story is just that. It's an origin story. It's not necessarily the only uh, way to tell that story. Um, and just as one example of that, in 1987, Gloria Anzaldúa published um, Borderlands, which is also a really important book of feminist theory. And in that book, she actually uses the, the term queer. So um, I think it's, it's really important to not see any of these narratives as definitive or etched in stone. I think there are multiple stories that can be told. And, um, and I think that's important in relation to how I use uh, Michel Foucault and the idea of genealogy that we get from Foucault, not as, you know, these histories as continuity with lines of filiation that sort of cover over the gaps between these different figures, but rather this idea of genealogy as discontinuity and as a way of looking at the past as a site that is fraught with absences and um, is fragmented rather than continuous. Um, And so I think it's really important to bring that genealogical perspective to the story of um, the queer feminist split that I'm trying to tell. So it's kind of a tricky project because on the one hand, I'm, I'm trying to retell this story so that people can see that there is in fact a split that's very real. And yet I'm also simultaneously trying to problematize that story as, as not being the only story to be told. Okay. And you're, and you're also showing a way forward, I think, um, by folding together the feminists and the queer in order to have a new approach to thinking about two things, both about sex and about ethics. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yes. And so, and so one of the points that I'm trying to make throughout the book and why the subtitle is called a queer, uh, feminist on the ethics of sex is that one of my fundamental claims is precisely that this rift that we do see between queer and feminist perspectives is one that often revolves around questions of ethics. Um, and just to put it really reductively, but I think it is symptomatic of, the, of this rift that I see between queer and feminist perspectives, I, I think feminism has tended to view sexuality as a site of harm and a place where women in particular have been made vulnerable. So there's a lot of feminist work around problems of sexual violence of various kinds, gender-based violence of various kinds. And often, both in terms of theory and also in terms of politics, the feminist approach to sexuality has, has been to seek protection, remediation, um, in the face of that harm from the state. And I think that the queer approach to sexuality has tended to downplay problems of sexual violence and problems of sexual vulnerability and has been more a discourse about sexual freedom and has tended to move away from the state as a site where we would seek 
some sort of um, political remediation of some sort. And so it has tended to be um, a less state-oriented politics and also theoretically a discourse that engages the language of, of freedom. Um, and so it has, it has almost been not anti-ethical, but queer theory has not engaged the language of ethics itself nearly as much as feminist theory has. And I think that's primarily because the language of ethics has often been used to um, dismiss or even to condemn those people who occupy what we might think, you know, positions of deviant sexuality of one kind or another. I mean, so it's been, it's the language that's been used um, to denounce queers. And, and so it makes sense that queer theorists have shied away from ethical language. But one of the points that I'm making is that you can't just bracket ethics. Um, you can't just have a negative ethics that you actually need to engage ethics in its fullest sense. Um, if if you want to engage the realm of the political as well. Okay. It's particularly in chapter one where you address the title of the book, Are the Lips a Grave? And in this essay, um, uh, you refer to the uh, feminist lips of Luce Irigares in her 1977 essay, When Our Lips Speak Together. And what, what do you propose to do with those lips in chapter one? Yeah, so so I haven't mentioned Arigari up to now, and I'm glad you brought her up because I would say the two primary philosophical pillars of the book are Foucault and Arigari. Mm-hmm. And what I get from Arigari is a kind of restoration of what I call an anti-foundationalist strand of feminist thinking that I think has been occluded in some contemporary feminist work. Now, that's not, you know, across the board the case, but I think what has happened, and and Robin Wigman points to this in her book, Object Lessons, and others have spoken about this, is is what I'm calling this anti-foundationalist strand of feminist thinking. You can call it, you know, post-structuralism. You can call it a kind of postmodern, non-identitarian mode of thinking. Whatever you want to call it, that strand, I think, has been re-signified as queer, but I think that there's, you know, a consistent feminist discourse that is is nonetheless doing a lot of what queer theory has claimed to do, which is, you know, challenging the coherence of identities and um, challenging the continuity of history and that kind of thing, um, which has, you know, been an important part of that feminist tradition. So, so when I turn to Arigari and her famous essay, When Our Lips Speak Together from 1977, this is from her book, um, The Sex Which Is Not One, one of the things that she's doing with that figure of the lips is she's using the lips as this way of signifying um, a, 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 a sexual form, a mode of communication, a way of being in the world that simultaneously exists and does not exist. And there's something very per- peculiarly Arigarayan about, about that mode of signification for trying to name something that both exists and does not exist. And um, it's the way she thinks about sexual difference generally. 
on the one hand, we live in a world in which we see sexual difference all around us. On the other hand, we also live in a world that is dominated by what Arigarai calls the logic of the same, where um, meaning is still signified in these masculine modes and where what Arigarai calls sexual difference, in fact, does not exist. So it's the simultaneous, simultaneous occupation of this position that is signified as sexual difference, and yet true sexual difference is something that actually cannot exist within this logic of the same. And so, so the lips themselves become what in rhetorical theory is known as, as, as catechesis. So it's a figural mode of signification for which there is no literal, um, there is no literal word. Um, an example of catechesis would be like the face of a mountain where we all know what a face of a mountain is and yet face, it's not literally a face, but there's no other way to describe it. And she's using the lips in that same way. And I think that there are a lot of resources for rethinking sexuality by rethinking the lips as not only feminist, but also as queer. So I'm, so one of the things on a more pragmatic, pragmatic level that I'm trying to do is to bring a rigor eye to the attention of queer theorists because she has been completely overlooked by queer theory. And she's often actually read as an essentialist thinker because I think a lot of readers miss the complexity of the rhetoric that I just described in a rigor eye and the complexity of the functioning of sexual difference as something that both exists and does not exist. And when they see something like, like the lips, they see it as a kind of biological essentialism. Um, where she's simply looking at a part of the female anatomy and attaching meanings and values to that biology. Um, when in fact, the, the lips cannot be pinned down, um, even just as a corporeal signifier. It's not just one thing. The lips can be the mouth, the lips can be the genitalia, and yet it's neither at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so how do you answer that question? Are the lips a grave? (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. You know, my father asked me the same question and I was stumped. (laughs) Well, talk to us about Leo Bersani's. (laughs) I mean, I do, I do think the lips are a grave. I mean, just to answer your question, I mean, in some ways it is a rhetorical question, but but I think if I had to answer, like, are the lips a grave? I would say, yes, they are a grave. And that is linked to um, the essay by Leo Persani that is echoed in my title. Um, the, the very famous essay is the rectum a grave. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, that I'm trying to bring out is that, you know, Leo Persani has become known as this founding thinker of, of what has come to be known as queer negativity. So this idea of sexuality as a non self-identical, again, force of rupture of discontinuity, something that shatters identities, right? That, that that's what sexuality is. And so he uses the rectum as a, as a metaphor for that, as the site of self shattering. And, um, what I'm doing, just even in asking that question rhetorically, are the lips a grave, is 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 trying to show that the 
sites through which that kind of question about rupture and shattering can be asked are are multiple because I think for Leo Bersani, it ends up becoming um, very specifically a question about gay male sexuality. And I think a lot of queer theory ends up articulating itself in relation to gay male sexuality. And so feminist questions and questions about gender and about um, a society that remains asymmetrically ordered according to a kind of gendered dominance. And we still live in a gendered order. I think a lot of that gets effaced in certain versions of queer theory that are focused specifically on the lives of gay men. And so one of the things I'm trying to bring back into the conversation is just that feminist perspective on gender asymmetry. And, and so I'm using the lips as a, as a metaphorical way to do that. Okay. And since we're talking about gay male sexuality, let's segue into chapter two, where you talk about queer universalism and how the I speaks for we, but which we? Can you, can you talk about um, your reading of Colette's The Pure and the Impure and her reading of another story you discuss in that chapter? Yeah, so um, this chapter is structured around Colette and Proust, and I use Colette and Proust as, again, metaphorical figures for naming um, a feminist versus a queer position. And I think one of the things that happens in some of the queer theory that I take up in that chapter is, is that there's, there are claims being made by people like Michael Warner in the name of the queer as, again, a kind of non-identitarian force of shattering that masks an unacknowledged universalism that inhabits the position of the queer. And, and so that's where this, this question of the queer we comes in. And I ask, you know, who is that queer we? That queer we sort of erects itself in relation to the non-queer, implicitly the non-queer. It, it's, it ends up setting up an, another binarism and um, where there's a kind of universalist assumption in the adoption of that, of that position of of the queer, and it seems counterintuitive because the queer is supposed to be anti-universalist, but I think one of the ways that queer theory plays itself out is it ends up reinforcing these universalizing assumptions. And in some ways, my my argument is inspired by um, by Kathy Cohen's early piece, um, Punks, Bulldaggers, and Welfare Queens, where she makes a similar argument about certain heterosexual women in particular who who are heterosexual and would never be included in the category of queer and yet lead these lives that are are considered non-normative um you know by within the sort of normalizing logic of our society and so i'm i'm just raising questions about the ways in which the language of the queer ends up producing other kinds of exclusions and so um so colette picks up on Proust's use of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible to um, talk about the fact that that 
opposition between Sodom and Gomorrah, it might look like a symmetrical opposition, but in fact, it's asymmetrical. So again, it it, it brings out this the, this issue of the asymmetry of gender that I was talking about earlier, where where Sodom becomes um, the figure of the masculine logic of the same that I was talking about in relation to a rigori. And Gomorrah basically cannot exist except uh, in as a kind of counterfeit copy of Sodom, um, which that corresponds to the argument a rigori makes about women having to speak in the language of men and having to use this language of mimicry in order to register it all within the grid of intelligibility of our gendered order. And, and so I reread Colette as making a similar kind of argument, um, especially in her book, The Pure and the Impure, which is where she picks up on this Proustian narrative about Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. In chapter three, we're talking about fisting. Um, why does fisting have special appeal for queer theory? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, yeah, so fisting, I think, is an example of one of the non-normative sexual practices around which entire erotic communities have developed. Gail Rubin, again, I mentioned her earlier, is an anthropologist who has done really wonderful ethnographic work documenting these kinds of erotic communities. Um, so, you know, for listeners who are interested, she has a great piece called The Catacombs that is specifically about um, fisting clubs that existed post-Stonewall, so sort of late 60s, early 70s, and then no longer exist because basically all of that ended with the rise of AIDS in the early 1980s. Um, and Foucault himself was a practitioner um, within these communities. He especially enjoyed going to California and engaging in some of these sexual practices, um, not just fisting, but other kinds of um, BDSM practices. So, so I take this up because one of the arguments I want to make is that you can't simply make a claim that because I'm engaging in some non-normative sexual practice, that necessarily means that I'm being transgressive and that I'm subverting society as we know it, and that somehow I'm I'm engaged in, in, a, in some kind of political practice of freedom, right? That I that's the claim that some people have made in relation to some of these practices, and and while I understand the appeal of those kinds of claims, I think it's overly simplistic. Now, some of these claims are actually made by relying on Foucault. Um, I take up David Halprin's book, Saint Foucault, in particular. He is one of the people, I think, who has made one of these claims in relation to Foucault's um, comments and interviews about some of these non-normative practices that lead to what he calls a desexualization of the body, right? Fisting is something that doesn't involve the genitalia, it's a degenitalization and therefore a desexualization of the body. Um, and David Halpern makes the claim that there's something subversive about that desexualization of the body. It's trying to undo sexuality as we know it. Um, and, and what I'm saying is 
that that's only one half of the story and that not only does not does, does that not deal with the problem the ongoing problem of sexual violence that feminists bring up again and again right and and simply engaging in these erotic practices doesn't undo the problem of the gendered order and the sexual violence or the gender-based violence that's attached to that but also that we have to always um, engage the issue of practices in relation to our thinking, that thinking and practices go together and you can't separate them and simply say that, that through a different kind of practice, the world is going to be transformed, that part of transformation, and this is one of Foucault's major points, especially in his later work, that, that in order to be transformed, we also need to transform our thinking. And so, um, I try to use the fist as a, as a figure, not just, um, for these erotic modes of self shattering, again, going back to the Bersani model, but, but, but rather as a figure that feminists have taken up, um, both in opposition to Foucault, who, feminists felt did not engage sufficiently with problems of sexual violence, but also the fist as the, as the kind of feminist fist raised in anger, um, against, against patriarchal forms of, um, governance and, and thinking. And so we need to think these different fists together in order to transform both our practices and our thinking. And you asked in this chapter, if I put it bluntly, can women do it too? Fisting. <laughs> <laughs> um, right? Why not? If a fist is neutral, as you say, not gendered, um, although it could re- replace the phallus in some imagery. Um, but the the way you conclude this chapter with a poem by Pat Califia mm-hmm. seems yeah. to answer the question with a yes. Yes, women can do it. Yes, although although you know, in in that particular poem, rather than a fist in an anus, it's a fist in a vagina. So again, there's this kind of shift that's happening that um, you know may or may not be important, but I think that those shifts need to be tracked. Um, and you know, and I think that when you shift from the um, the, the anal fisting to the vaginal fisting, you're also shifting from Bersani's rectum to a rigorized lips in a way. And yet when you engage the lips, it's not simply, you know, a genital, um, kind of project. The lips are also, um, you know, can be, we can think of the lips as, as the love, you know, on our mouth. And, and so what happens when you imagine a, a fist in a mouth and it also brings up questions of gagging and not being able to speak. And so I, it's, it's still, it's still very fraught. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is you can't just take something like a fist and say, this is the site of our sexual freedom, um, that there are still going to be these, these knotted, um, you know, forms of meaning where both freedom and constraint, um, you know, both liberation and, um, repression are coexist. Um, and so, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm basically just promoting a kind of ongoing vigilance about the kinds of claims that are made 
in the name of sexual freedom. And in this chapter, I notice another shift that, that you discuss, the kind of linguistic slippage that happens that you do want to bring to the forefront between, for example, queer that has come to be understood or used to be understood as gay men, just like the masculine, quote, universalism that you you um, discuss in your previous chapter. Uh, yes, definitely, definitely. And that's true. There is a kind of slippage. And again, this is something that I find that I find in Halperin. So, so what I'm saying again and again, and this is from my very explicitly feminist perspective, is that as much as queer theory promotes itself as non-identitarian, I think that non-identitarian position masks the false universal of a masculine queer we. Yeah, so I'm definitely making that claim again in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think we also begin to see here in this chapter another theme that is really deeply woven in throughout the book that is the, um, the theme of the, the link between sexuality and writing. Yes, absolutely. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I mean, some of the, again, some of the earliest French feminist thinkers talked about that link between sexuality and writing a lot. In particular, Alain Sixou is something, somebody who has written about, about that a lot, but that, um, that, the process of both our making ourselves as sexual beings, but also our own unmaking as sexual beings to me is very much um, paralleled or interwoven, as you say, with this idea of um, making and unmaking the self through different modes of writing. And one of the things that I try to do not only in this book, but in, but in all of my books is, is, is to try to experiment with different ways of writing in order to open up different ways of thinking, I guess, to put it most simply um, that I, that I think, you know, you, again, you can't separate form from content that, that, that content and form are inextricably woven together. And the undoing of the sexual subject, I think requires a different kind of writing. And this is something that I see in both Foucault and de Rigori, that I think they're engaging in that kind of practice of, of different modes of writing. They're not the only ones, obviously. Um, I mean, I mentioned Gloria Ansaldua before. I think she's another great example of a writer who is challenging the limits of academic writing, of theoretical writing, of philosophical writing, by using puns. Um, in the case of, case of Ansaldua, she's mixing languages um, creating multiple meanings. You see the same thing in a rigori, in particular in that famous essay, when our lips speak together, there are lots of multiple meanings, um, meanings that can't be pinned down. And in particular, again, with that leading um, catechistic figure of the lips. And then, but I, I find this in Foucault as well, which is something that I think is often missed in readings of Foucault. I, I, I really do see Foucault as an incredible stylist. And Deleuze talked about that a lot, that Foucault was an amazing stylist of language. And if you spend a lot of time with Foucault and you read through all of his work, you see this really, really clearly, that he's constantly experimenting with different ways of writing. His use of, of irony in particular is is absolutely brilliant. And I think one of the things that Foucault does with his 
irony is he undoes the stability of a speaking subject um, so that any claim that is made you know, by the narrative voice that you find in any of Foucault's writings is, is an unstable one. And I think that's really important. And so I, in my own writing, try to use a rigor ion, so do a Foucault and others as, as models of uh, Sedgwick is another one, right. Of, as models of how to rethink and repractice what we're doing through different ways of writing. And readings. So if, if you could, would you talk about your reading of Lawrence versus Texas, the 2003 Supreme Court decision? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, this is the topic of chapter four. And basically, I'm using that chapter to challenge the queer narrative of sexual freedom that comes out of the 2003 Supreme Court decision, Lawrence v. Texas, that decriminalized sodomy. At that point, there were still, I think it was five states that had um, sodomy statutes on the books, and it was deemed unconstitutional in Lawrence v. Texas. And this decision was taken up by a lot of queer activists as, quote, our Brown, referring to Brown v. Board of Education, as this landmark decision signaling sexual freedom. So one of the things I do in looking back at the actual decision um, by Kennedy on the Supreme Court and also looking at some of the cases that are cited in the decision is that it's a kind of palimpsest, as all decisions are. And so I actually use um, the literary idea of intertextuality, um, this idea that any text is actually, as, as Julia Christeva puts it, a mosaic of citations, to reread the Lawrence v. Texas decision as a palimpsest of earlier decisions. And one of those earlier decisions is a Georgia decision from 1998, Powell v. State, um, again, it's cited in a lot of the briefs that were brought before the court in Lawrence v. Texas. And Lawrence v. State was actually the decision that overturned the sodomy um, statute in, in Georgia. And if you look at what actually happens in the Georgia, in the, sorry, in the Powell v. State decision from um, 1998, what you see is the story of a sexual encounter between a 17-year-old girl and her uncle for which the uncle was then convicted of sodomy in a situation that most people do not have in mind when they celebrate Lawrence v. Texas as a decision about sexual freedom. And so I look actually at the transcript of the original trial that led to Powell v. State, and I look at this very complex situation that led to the conviction of Powell as a sodomite, as I put it. Um, and it's a, it's a complex story that involves a history of racialization. It involves, uh, again, the history of, a, of an asymmetrical gendered order. It involves a history of sodomy being any act that's basically not the missionary position. In this case, it was cunnilingus, which is what allowed the state to convict Powell of sodomy in a situation where whether or not the act was consensual was was fraught. 
Um, and so I, I use this to point to the ambiguity of so many of these situations um, that involve, you know, sexual encounters and that, and that to reduce it to a story about simply uh, forced sex or simply sexual freedom um, is, is, is incredibly reductive. And, um, you know, one of the things I, I found in working on this chapter was that most of the convictions, 86% of the convictions since the 1986 Supreme Court, Court decision, Bowers v. Hardwick, which is the one that made it constitutional to convict people of sodomy. Most of the decisions since Bowers v. Hardwick, 86% were actually situations of opposite sex encounters like the one in Powell. So what I'm arguing in that chapter is that when we think of decriminalization of sodomy and we think freedom of you know, same-sex couples to do what they want in the privacy of their own home, that's actually not what's happening in the majority of these cases. So it's much more murky and much more complex and than, than we had imagined. And you look very closely at the testimony of the Powell case. Um, and your goal is to interrogate what has been rendered silent by the law. Uh, by the judicial system. And so you kind of resuscitate the voice of the girl. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So, so the, the girl in this, in this case, her name is Krishana. And as you say, I, I look at the testimony and, and what I look at in that testimony is the way in which there is no idiom within the law through which Koshana's experience of that encounter can be spoken. And I, I draw on François Lyotard's very well-known theory of the different, the différent, to analyze the way in which the idiom of the law produces a kind of silence, um, the silence of, of what he calls the different. And I think this situation is a, is a very good example of that. And so I raised the question of, given that the language of the law doesn't allow for the speaking of the silence that persists, right? There's no way that the law can capture the experience of Krishana. In a way, given the parameters of what the law can do, it, it's it's hard to imagine what justice might look like in Krishana's situation. And so I, just, I simply raise questions about, is the idiom of the law the best way to pursue projects of justice? And I think that's a very sort of queer theory kind of question. I think queer theory has been, um, you know, often very critical of the kind of governance responses to certain kinds of, of situations. And those governance responses include the formal mechanisms of the law. And so there's a kind of contradiction within queer theory. On the one hand, it's been critical of governance responses to um, inequality and marginalization. And on the other hand, it has drawn on this Lawrence v. Texas decision as this site of sexual freedom. And so I'm using this situation in Powell to show how that, you know, we need more um, subtle tools for excavating um, different ways of thinking about justice. And what about the privacy? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's a big problem too, right? Um, so, I mean, I think one of the things that happens in Lawrence v. Texas is it re, uh, it reifies, yeah, it reifies the, re-solidifies in a sense the public-private distinction because if you read the language of the Kennedy decision, it's very much about celebrating the, quote, liberty of same-sex couples to engage in different kinds of practices in the privacy of the domestic sphere. But it doesn't address all of the other issues that queer theorists like Michael Warner and others have brought up about um, the problems with the public-private distinctions that underlie our understanding of sexuality. Um, And that's obviously a question that feminists have brought up as well, the, you know, the big feminist critique of the public-private distinction around sexuality has been that the private is the space that often hides, um, you know, the fact of ongoing sexual violence, um, and that and that there's, you know, very little recourse um, when it is hidden behind the walls of the private. Now, obviously, feminist jurisprudence has made great headway in that regard. So I think it's rather ironic that this fairly recent decision, Lawrence v. Texas, then reifies the very division between the public and private that feminist thinkers have been trying to dismantle for decades. Mm-hmm. And in Powell's case, we have a rape charge that brings about a sodomy conv- conviction and a, an a, and acquittal on rape. So it, you, you tell us that it's not very unique, actually, as you said, uh, this has happened many times in the law, but it seems so extraordinary. I know it it is quite extraordinary when you actually look at it and it's counterintuitive. It's not what most of us would imagine. And I myself was quite um, surprised when I read through the transcript of the trial. And then when I read um, William Eskridge's book about this, which I highly recommend where he's the one who brings out the fact that, 86% 86% of these convictions are in fact situations like this. Um, I, I, th- I think what it points to is that there are, the, again, these situations where a charge is brought before the state. And in the case of um, Powell v. State, the charge was one of rape and, and, and forced um, sodomy. And, and because of the ambiguities of the case, the, the state was unable to prove non-consent. They simply were not able to prove non-consent. And so rather than simply acquitting Powell, they used another weapon in the state's arsenal, right, of, of, of law that regulates sexuality, in, in this case the sodomy law, to convict Powell, even though they could not prove non-consent. And so, and this, as I said, is what has happened in so many of these sodomy cases. Now, I, you know, I haven't done the research to see what has happened since 2003. Um, I think there are still a lot of areas of the law that are still um, very ambiguous when it comes to this kind of thing. And so, um, you know, what the law actually does versus what the law purports to do. Um, are, are two very different things. Mm-hmm. And you conclude that chapter by saying that the law does not hear Quashana's voice or testimony because it refuses to acknowledge the encounter as non-consensual 
what the law does here, Koshana, by punishing Powell. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And logic would dictate, you write, that Koshana, like Powell, was therefore a consenting sodomite. But of course, the law did not go that far. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, 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 it's actually illogical, or it's inconsistent. But the, the law presents itself as based on this rational system, and, it, and but in fact, in its own decisions, it's completely irrational and inconsistent. If it were completely consistent, it would have convicted Kushana as a sodomite as well, which it did not. Right. Talk about Sarah and Hagar. Okay. So this is uh, chapter 7. And this is a chapter that is based, this is in one of these places where I try to use a more experimental mode of writing to think through a, a really difficult issue. And I guess the way I would summarize the difficult issue is the problem of betrayal among women. That's one of the sub-themes of the entire book. Um, I think it's one of the things that Arigarai points us to when she says that there is no maternal genealogy. One of the things that she's pointing to is the fact that that women women betray each other, um, and so it's it's one of the problems of the asymmetries of sexual difference. And we have we have this fantasy of feminist solidarity, which is built on this ideal of women's connections among each other, whether it's mothers with daughters or sisters with sisters, you know, feminist um, sisterhood. But I think the reality is that the history of feminism and the history of, of women on this earth is, is one that's fraught with um, women being violent toward each other and women betraying each other. So, so that general theme is something that I take up in a very particular way by recounting a narrative a personal narrative that happened uh, about an incident that happened a long time ago when I was living in New Haven and I was with my partner um, who is Afro-Caribbean and we encountered a clerk at a grocery store who made a comment that, uh, that I should have responded to in, in some sort of way. And I didn't, um, and I read my inability to respond to this clerk's comment as the way in which I think a lot of white women have been able to use silence. Um, so it's kind of like the flip side of Koshana's silence. Um, Koshana is African-American. So it's the, it's the flip side of Koshana's silence in that I think for white, a lot of white women, silence is, is often a sign of privilege. Um, you don't have to engage something. You don't have to speak about something. And, and so I, I try to examine that by looking at the encounter that involved my partner, the way in which we talked it through, um, and, and then I try to link that to the story of um, Hagar and Sarah in the Bible in Genesis, um, where, if you recall, in Genesis, Abraham sends Hagar into the wilderness, and Sarah says nothing. And so Sarah becomes this figure of the white woman who says nothing, and that's the sign of her privilege. And so I use that narrative in the Bible to ask via a short story by Sarah Maitland um, who imagines Sarah and Hagar as lovers. What would it mean? What does it mean in the case of me and my partner Tamara to 
think of Sarah and Hagar as lovers without effacing that history of betrayal that is in part, not only, but is, is in part of a history of, um, of racial divisions and, and racialized betrayals of various kinds. Um, and so, and so I, I, I try to interweave the story of the Bible with the retelling of the story in the short story by Sarah Maitland with my own personal narrative about my encounter with, um, with this clerk um, when I was with Tamara in New Haven all those years ago. You call this a moment of betrayal or a moment of love faltering mm. um, or even as far as an ethical failure. Um, and you, and you do, you relate the personal with the scholarly in such a beautiful way in this chapter. Um, you admit that the word betray- betrayal is harsh and yet, maybe it's not harsh enough, as you also say. Yeah, I think I think betrayal um, is a harsh word, but I also think it doesn't fully capture the the historical depth and breadth that I'm trying to address in this chapter, and I think. I think by drawing on the Bible and drawing on these different stories, these different retellings, I'm trying to signal that this is not just about me, even though I'm using my own personal story. It's not just about me in an interracial relationship and in an interracial love relationship in which, of course, as in every relationship, betrayals are inevitable. But I think we tend to think of betrayal as an individual ethical failing And it certainly was that in that moment at that grocery store. But I also am trying to point to a kind of historical sedimentation of violence um, and failure, a a historical sedimentation of ethical failures that is not easily repaired. And I'm trying to disabuse us of the idea that simply – you know, in engaging in a reparative relationship on an individual level necessarily addresses those layers of historical failures. And that those historical failures are traces of the past that we all carry carry with us, whether we're conscious of them or not, right? We carry them with us. Um, again, which is why that Foucauldian idea of genealogy is so important, right? We carry the past with us. Why is he so concerned with the past? Because, because we are the past. Um, and that past, you know, as, as something that fractures us and breaks us open. And so what I'm trying to say about ethics in all of that is that, is that to articulate an adequate, way of thinking about the ethics of sex, as I put it in the title, is not about coming up with some sort of ethical ideal, because that ethical ideal is always going to, it's always going to fall short, right? It's always going to fall short. And so an ethics needs to engage with the inevitability of ethical failures. So that needs to be a part of the way we think about, about ethics. Talk about the ethics of care, field that became a field around the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the um, feminist legacies that I deal with in this chapter 
I'm sure as a lot of the listeners know, there's a whole tradition of a feminist ethics of care that is contesting earlier, more traditional models of thinking about ethics as deontological and a Kantian mode or other, other versions of a, of a more normative ethics right, based on certain guidelines or rules um, that we need to use in order to um, lead ethical lives. And what the ethics of care says is there's actually, there actually are these relations of dependency, right, that tend to be situated, again, in the domestic sphere, or they tend to involve the lives of women. Carol Gilligan was one of the first um, writers to really sort of empirically document how this works in her book, In a Different Voice, um, from the 1970s. Um, but that got taken up by other writers and developed into a whole um, philosophy of an ethics of care where those relations of dependency are taken seriously and obviously a kind of normative way of thinking about morality doesn't respond to the realities of dependency that that thinking of an ethics of care tries to capture. And then I, I kind of zoom forward into the present where I think most people don't use that language of the ethics of care as much anymore. It was, it was, it was influential, but it was also strongly critiqued because it does tend to um, essentialize certain ideas about uh, women and femininity um, as nurturing, as other-oriented, as, as generous, etc. Some of these essentialist views of women, I think, were um, strongly rejected by, by certain people. But what has taken its place is the contemporary field of vulnerability studies. And vulnerability has become extremely pervasive as a way of thinking about not just women, but about you know, human and non-human life in general. Um, I was just at a, at a conference about, you know, um, feminism and its relation to threats to the planet, you know, from climate change and the acidification of oceans and, and all of that. And vulnerability was a term that just kept coming up over and over again. So I, th- I actually see vulnerability as one of the legacies of this earlier feminist ethics of care. And I, get, and I guess what I'm saying in this chapter is that I'm, I'm very nervous and suspicious of this attachment to vulnerability as the place out of which we build our ethics, because I think it comes dangerously close to what Wendy Brown calls our wounded attachments, right? That as feminists, we, we tend to be attached to the, the places of our woundedness. And what that does is it, 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 it's not conscious, but I think it keeps us from examining our capacity for violence, our capacity for aggression, for the ways in which we're, we're not vulnerable, but in fact, we are perpetrators in, in various ways. And so I, I think we need to really um, take responsibility for our own capacity for aggression, even if we are vulnerable at the same time. Let's conclude, Lynn's with uh, Virginie Despentes. Okay. Tell us about her, her writing, her filmmaking, her message. Thanks. Sure. So, um, yeah, Virginie Despentes is is pretty well known in in France. Um, She's probably less well known in this this country. She's a novelist and a filmmaker. And um, she published a book in 1993 called 
bismois, which uh, is translated into English as rape me, but you you could really translate it as fuck me, don't you think? <laughs> I think that's a better translation. The second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she also she also made um, a film based on the book and my chapter on on Virginie Despont is really picking up on this idea of violence that I was just talking about because it's an extremely violent book and an extremely violent film and it's a kind of um hybrid montage of different genres of a film. Um, it's a, it's a kind of, again, mosaic or palimpsest. You could definitely do a sort of intertextual reading of the film as this palimpsest of different genres of film from the rape revenge film to the buddy film to it, it uses shots that are straight out of, um, you know, porn where you have the money shot and so forth. So you have these different genres of film that are, that are brought together in basically a hardcore version of, um, of Thelma and Louise. It's like a hardcore rape revenge film. And as I said, it's extremely violent. There are a lot of scenes that are very, very difficult to watch. Um, I, I find this film to be really fascinating as a way of engaging this question of, um, women's capacity for violence and I think the rape revenge genre in general is is something that you know needs to be explored uh, further, particularly in the context of the contemporary focus on on vulnerability. Um, I, I I think that um, Virginie Despont really brings out um, this question of of violence in really striking ways, and I compare Despont with. Valerie Solanus, who was an American feminist who is famous for, um, she was part of Andy Warhol's group, although he never really accepted her, but she did have some contact with Andy Warhol um, and wrote The Scum Manifesto, The Society for Cutting Up Men. And so I read um, Valerie Solanus and Virginie Despont as these feminist figures of, of a kind of rage um, that gets expressed through violence or through fantasies of violence. And then I ask how we read that in the context of um, a need to go beyond just revenge. And um, I end up using Despont's later writings about her own experience as a prostitute and how what she found as a prostitute was less that she was the female victim of male aggression, which I think is often how um, a lot of feminist theorists like Catherine McKinnon end up depicting something like female sex work. That, that less than that, what she found as a sex worker herself was, was just this kind of um, tenderness and fragility among her own clients. And so, and so I, I use this as a way to try to think actually beyond sexuality as a way of thinking about our own intelligibility and that there's, which is why the, you know, the, the chapter is called after sex. Um, I, I think that, that ultimately what the book is trying to do is to undo sexuality itself in order to think about ethics in some way that isn't simply reduced to, a grid of understanding that reduces us to sexual beings. And I think Virginie Despont um, helps us to do that 
again, through her own uh, very experimental style of um, filmmaking and writing. And if I may, Lynn, quote you um, from your reading of Virginie Despentes, uh, just one of the many beautiful sentences in your book here. I'll read from page 174. You say this, it is not porn per se or even rape that is the object of this feminist outrage, but rather the grinding, repetitive, systematic, never-ending thwarting of life as eros, the denial of the choreographies invented together. And I do think eros is another very important theme in your book. Yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. It, it definitely is a strand that runs through the book. Um, you know, eros is a, is a term that I've wrestled with a lot. I, I engage it consistently in my book on Foucault. I try to tease out a kind of muted voice in Foucault that's an ethics of Eros. And I bring that out again in this book about the ethics of sex. And one of the things that I'm trying to do, and I bring this out in the afterword as well, which is about biopower and bios, you know, life as bios, as the object of techniques and this way of ordering life in our contemporary age that I think is putting the entire planet at risk. And I try to rethink Eros not just as a word that means sexual love, but also as a word that means life, right? In the way that Freud used it, for example, he also meant life, especially in some of his later writings. And it's not to reduce it to a Freudian model, but it's to rethink Eros as this strange word um, that names something that cannot be captured by the bios of biology, by the scientized understanding of life. Um, and that it, that also is is not simply about what we think of as our sexual um, selves, right? That it's that it that it's more all encompassing than that, and it includes those elements that I mentioned earlier of tenderness, of generosity, of something that isn't about what we think of as sexuality at all. Thank you so much, Lynn Huffer. We've taken up a lot of your time already. Can we conclude? Uh, can you just tell us for a few moments about what you're working on now? Sure. Um, so I'm still, uh, I'm still somewhat obsessed with Foucault. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and though, although I'm not only working on Foucault, um, I, I, I'm still finding resources in Foucault for thinking about some of the issues that confront us today. So my most recent work has been to look somewhat critically at the feminist return to nature in contemporary feminist philosophy. There have been a lot of thinkers um, that have arisen in the last couple of decades who have explicitly returned to nature as the site for feminist philosophizing. And probably the most prominent is Elizabeth Gross. And one of the things that I've been working on lately has been to critique the, what I see as trans, as trans historical, assumptions about life or what many of these thinkers call life itself that characterize this return to nature. And so I use Foucault, you know, I think in a pretty obvious way to um, historicize this idea of life. Foucault says very famously in the order of things that life itself was invented in the 19th century, right? Life was invented with the rise of biology as a science. And then I, I then move from that critique to um, try to historicize life by understanding human life in the context of, of, of deep time. And Foucault has some really interesting writings on 
fossils um, and and the fossil record as a kind of archive of nature. And so I'm trying to rethink nature and rethink life through the lens of fossils that we get from Foucault. And this is taking me into a whole other realm. So I'm like learning about the history of paleontology and I'm thinking about deep time and I'm engaging with some of the new French philosophy, um, particularly the work of um, Quentin Mayasu, where he has this concept of the archifossil, and um, which is it's really a, a way of kind of um, going beyond human conceptions of time to think about the time of the Earth in the context of what a lot of geologists are now calling um, the Anthropocene, and the Anthropocene is this idea of a period of geological time that is actually marked by the human. So, so in the context of climate change and just environmental concerns in general, the, the earth itself is, has been shaped by human forces, right? So the human forces have become a kind of a geomorphic force, if you will. Um, so that's what my current thinking is, is moving toward. Well, that sounds like a fascinating project, really. Um, and I want to thank you for being on the show today to talk to us about your most recent book, Are the Lips a Grave? I really enjoyed reading it, and I really enjoyed talking to you about it. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you.